I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Yep, another beautiful episode. My guest for today is Roberto Alavardia, and I'm telling you, oh my goodness, you're all going to love this episode. We talk today about males and eating disorders, and you are going to hear Roberto's passion come through in this podcast. We talk about the fact that men are so underrepresented and they underreport when it comes to eating disorders and eating disorder behaviors. We talk about coaches and medical consequences that can happen with males and eating disorders. We talk about the media influence, the diet industry, everything that women are subjected to, men are as well. We also talk about the connection between ADHD and eating disorders. And I'm telling you, like I just said, you can hear Roberto's passion as he talks for this week's episode. All right, everyone, let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. This is a very special episode, and I know everyone, I say it at the beginning of everyone, we have today for our guest, Roberto Olivardia, and Roberto is not a recovered professional but he is a brilliant clinician who has co-authored books and done so much work around men and eating disorders. I absolutely had to have him on the show. Roberto, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Karen. It's my pleasure. I think one of the reasons why I also had Roberto on the show is every time I hear you speak at a conference, I'm smiling. It's your energy. It's your passion. It's also a topic that is not talked about nearly enough. And I just want to spread the word. So Roberto, can you say a little bit about who you are, what you do, the book you co-authored, things like that? Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist and lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Um, I have a psychotherapy practice in Lexington, Massachusetts. I work with all ages from young to adults. Um, I specialize in a, a couple of things, um, working with boys and men with eating disorders. I specialize in the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and body dysmorphic disorder or BDD. And my interest in boys and men with eating disorders actually goes back to an undergraduate, when I was an undergraduate at Tufts University, where um, I took an eating disorders class. I was a clinical psych major there. And for my term paper, I thought, well, let me look at the literature on boys and men with eating disorders. And incidentally, that semester, there were two men who didn't know each other, independent of each other, had disclosed to me that they were struggling with an eating disorder and in very severe levels. And when I had done that term paper, I realized, wow, there really isn't much written about it. There isn't, you know, it was, it was kind of grim. They said the prognosis was pretty terrible for boys and, and men. And I thought, hmm, and that culminated into doing a senior honors thesis my senior year. And unbeknownst to me at the time, it was the first study of eating disorders in men that drew men from a community as opposed to clinical samples. And there we found in, in 
you know, it was just the beginning really of, of this interest. And I remember my committee, my thesis committee saying, you should have a plan B because you might not have enough men responding to these ads because I put ads in all college newspapers in Massachusetts area. These were college men. And I was, it, my, I remember my answering machine tape was full with messages from men um, just be feeling very grateful that somebody was even looking to research this. You know, it it is so underreported when men are struggling and eating disorders in general carry a lot of shame attached to it. And, you know, not that I ever want to put anything in a, in a label or a box, but I think men with eating disorders carry more shame because it's supposedly a women's disorder. So now you've got shame on top of shame. And there are things that look different. There are things that are very similar about men and women with eating disorders, and there are some things that are different. So it's not noticed. I think I'd like to start, if it's okay, what do you find are the similarities and the differences between men and women or boys and girls with eating disorders? Sure. So I, I would first... Um you know, definitely in terms of what you said, I mean, the shame is such a huge component in terms of what prevents a lot of males from seeking treatment. And even within treatment, it's always, it's always been a topic that has to be discussed, probably for most people, the primary topic before we even getting into the eating disorder is how they feel about what this means about them as boys and as men and, and really kind of shattering these misconceptions and myths that um, only women, you know, have eating disorders. Um, there are a lot of similarities in terms of presentation and treatment for a lot of, um, if we take anorexia, for example, I would say one of the major differences is the majority of boys and men that I've treated with anorexia are not looking to necessarily be skinny, that a lot of them will say, I want to be lean, but I also want to have some muscle on me. And I know I need to gain fat in order to gain muscle, but I'm too afraid of, I, I can't do that. Like, I don't know how, because what if the fat doesn't turn into muscle? And so a lot of the boys and men I work with, they know that their, their body image is actually more clear than typically what you might see with women, that the, you don't see sometimes the distortions of, oh, I think I'm overweight when in fact they're really thin. They'll say, I know I'm very thin um, and I want to gain weight. I just don't want it to be in fat. And for boys and, and males in general, being overweight and over fat are two very different concepts. So, you know, if you look at, I, cause I also work with men on the other end of the spectrum who are bodybuilders, weightlifters, who are very big. A lot of them use anabolic steroids and they fear they look too small. So their body image distortion goes in another way. So with men, they don't, for the most part, don't care if they're overweight. So if they have whatever the number, it's really about the body fat, you know, percentage. Whereas typically with women, they are more synonymous, being overweight, over fat, kind of have the same concept. Um, now that's not to say I haven't worked with males who have the traditional presentations of anorexia, but I would say the majority definitely fall more into, into that range. Um, as far as with something like bulimia, that, and the other thing also with anorexia, and similar to what you would see with girls, is uh, a lot of OCD. And sometimes the obsessive compulsive disorder is really the primary, you know, it's almost like the bus driver, I say, that, and the eating disorder is almost a manifestation of that. Um, and with bulimia nervosa, in, because I also specialize in treatment with ADHD, that um, you'll often see ADHD comorbid with bulimia, binge eating disorder. Um, and I would say the main difference, particularly with bulimia and binge eating disorder, is a lot of the men themselves might not even recognize that this is a problem. Sometimes the men that I treat don't come in my office because they have, you know, pre presenting as having an eating disorder. They might come in my office for ADHD, for depression. And then in my intake, I always ask everybody in, in an intake, you know, what their sleep habits are like, what their eating habits are like. And sometimes, you know, I'll hear these stories. I'm like, that's, that sounds like binge eating behavior. And they're like, well, everyone said I was always 
a hearty eater and and yet they endorse feeling out of control and and all this relationship with food and so that's something I also notice as a big difference is just that recognition even within the individual um, themselves. Um, but in terms of treatment, it can look very similar. And in the, the upside is that the prognosis isn't inherently worse with males. It's that if males are not seeking treatment, the longer they have the eating disorder, the worse the prognosis is going to be. And I have um, scene two, and the other thing I, in terms of my bio is I co-authored a book 20 years ago, I can't believe it's been 20 years, um, called The Adonis Complex, which really is the first book of its kind that details all the various manifestations of body image problems. So we talk about eating disorders in males, body dysmorphic disorder, plastic surgery, steroid use, media imagery that's directed towards boys and men. And, um, and the good news is, is that I think with that and with a lot of men knowing that they're not the first male patient that I've seen, that they're more open to therapy and treatment and they can do very well and they can recover. Recovery is absolutely possible. The book is wonderful. And I, I also want to say, um, and, and Roberto, I just have to say, cause you and I are, are I think similar in age. I was reading your bio, and this does give away your age. You talk about being on VH1. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, oh, my God, I love him so much. Do, do, do some people, do people of this generation know what VH1 is? I don't even know. I don't know. And, you know, I, I'm, 40, I'm 48 years old. And um, the other thing that people who know me, I, I have a passion for psychology and, and the work I do. I also have an intense passion for music. I'm a total music junkie. And um, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, this is a, a privilege saying that the hardest thing about COVID for me, I mean, thankfully, my family's healthy, is that I haven't been able to go to any concerts um, in 2020, which is the first year since 1984, since I was 11 years old, I have not gone to a concert. Um, so being on VH1, so which was at the time more of a music television show, was I mean, that was a highlight for me to be talking about body image and music videos and male artists. That was amazing. It was such a great experience. I bet. And I don't want listeners to think that I just sidetracked into giving a plug about VH1 that you were on it because you're right. And and, and I was thinking about it because I could visualize about the Adonis complex in, in the book and everything in your in your bio. And it is. That book was written 20 years ago, and there are so many things that still apply today. So many of the messages from the media, from, you know, you talk about that men or boys are just as much subjected to the media of what a quote unquote male is supposed to look like. And by the way, I think they get mixed messages. They get either the 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 emaciated rock star who look has this one look or the the model and then they also have the the celebrities or the the models with the six pack and the big muscles and so it is really confusing for men just as it is for women absolutely i think that the thing that really stood out from from that book and when i give talks uh, regarding that and I really focus on that because, I mean, we know historically girls and women have been subjected to, you know, these totally unattainable um, ideals in, in the media. And with boys, it's historically a little bit differently that prior to, you know, the late 1970s, they're really, I mean, the ads were like the tough Marlboro man, you know, he wasn't particularly well built and going to the gym. He was a smoker who had a cowboy hat and, and it was about looking rugged and looking masculine. And Hollywood stars like Jimmy Stewart, you know, they weren't, they weren't known for their bodies. You know, they were, there was a certain um, approach and a certain personality, you know, about them. And I think, you know, there was a study that um, myself and my co-authors did where we looked at advertisements and magazines in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s in terms of where the male body started to be more of a commodity. And the truth is, is that 
advertisers felt, well, we have half of the population hate their bodies and we can make money off it. So why not get more money and make the other half? And so in the late 70s, early 80s, we started seeing more ads of, you know, the chest, bare chested man, um, Burt Reynolds, you know, as the cosmopolitan centerfold um, and these, these proliferation of men's health and men's fitness magazines that really now started to promote something different. I mean, who are the biggest movie stars in the 80s? Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I mean, they, their bodies were their commodity. I mean, that was, that was their, their commodity in that way. And as a child that grew up in the 80s, you know, watching the WWF, which, you know, Hulk Hogan and all these like massive, like big muscular um, imagery. And we started to see that a lot more and more. And I don't think people are as aware of what that can do in terms of the, the messaging that that, um, you know, brings to boys. I remember you also in one of the conferences that I've heard you speak at, don't you, I say, I remember now I'm asking, weren't you the one who put up images of action figures for, for, you know, just like Barbie's shaped change dramatically for women over the last 30 years to the point that Barbie couldn't even stand up straight. If that was a real human being, you showed action figures, young boys that used to have similar, you know, action, you know, similar dolls that, that girls had, you know, not much to say about their body. And now they are the muscles, the thin waist, the puffed chest. So can you speak a little to that? Or did I just do it? No, no, I'm glad. No, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something it's interesting of all the research studies that I've done that one, um, you know, which was published in you know, this this little journal, and it got um, it was done in '98. I think we did that study, and it you know made all this news because I think it shocked people to sort of see. So yes, that was inspired by the landmark Barbie study that found that if Barbie were if her dimensions were taken as a real life female, it would be very unhealthy at the you know at the the most and and uh, totally unattainable, you know, uh, very unhealthy at the least, and then very unattainable. And like you said, where you can't even stand it up. So we thought, what what's the analogy to that? You know, that typically. So I was a boy that had you know action figures. You know, um, we you know we didn't call them dolls, but it's the same thing basically. Um, they they you know again this is this sort of gendered terms of action figures, and so GI Joe was the most is the most popular, um, you know, has been around for decades. And we got pictures of an an action figures over the decades. And, you know, the GI Joe, we measured them similar to the Barbie study and and made them analogous and found that um, prior to the 1980s, they were totally attainable, you know, a fit military, you know, man. And then in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, it really shifted and I, I, you know, encourage people when hearing this podcast to just Google, you know, GI Joe over the years, and they're scary. The GI Joes that look today, they look rageful. And as you mentioned, the six pack, the muscle striations, the thing that was most striking though about that study that um, we had Star Wars, the Star Wars movie, the action figures that came out in the 70s. And then that year they had re-released Star Wars in the movies because it was digitally remastered and such. And they re-released the action figure line and the action figures are so drastically different. I mean, to the point where it's, and keep in mind, this is based on the same character and it looks completely different. I mean, Mark Hamill who plays Luke Skywalker actually has reportedly said when he saw the action figure, oh my God, they put Luke Skywalker on steroids because and 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 also incidentally princess leia's breast size tripled you know from the 1970s to the 1990s action figure so to me like there's something very insidious about that like there's a deliberate attempt at making these action figures that don't even look like the actor or the character and what is that about and and it you know batman and and superman that all of these things that are really pushing these this imagery and for people who don't think that boys are affected by that, um, 
you know, I, I really encourage people to sort of open their minds because they absolutely do. Now, boys sometimes themselves might not realize it. I remember speaking to a classroom of seventh grade boys, it was a health class, and uh, one of my female colleagues talked to the girls and I talked to the boys in one room. And I said, you know, how much do you feel that you're impacted by, you know, this this advertising? And they were all like, not at all. Oh my gosh, like, you know, only girls are affected by that, you know? And I said, well, do you have friends, male friends that are affected by that? And all of them said, oh yeah, I know lots of other guys <laughs> that are affected by, it, but not me, like I wouldn't be. And I remember this one kid, he was, he was 13, seventh grader. He said, oh, I'm, I'm not like that stuff is just, you know, and meanwhile, he's talking to me and his pant, he didn't wear, he didn't have a belt on and his pants were drooped down enough that I could see the Calvin Klein, you know, underwear band and, you know, all of this sort of Abercrombie clothes. And, and I, um, and I thought, wow, that's interesting because he probably isn't even aware because when I was growing up, no one bought Calvin Klein, like you were Fruit of the Loom or Hanes underwear. Like it was, it, it, you didn't drop you know seven bucks for a pair of underwear <laughs> it's like so i think it's it's that insidious because we're taught as we should to be aware of this kind of imagery on how girls view their bodies and, and body image we're we're not i still feel like we're not there yet and in, in understanding what messaging that could send to boys i i actually am at this point gonna make a little bit of a turn because so we've spoken a little bit about what the media and advertisement can do for boys. Let's also talk, you said you work with ADHD in boys with and, and how they go hand in hand sometimes with eating disorders. So what would you like to share about that? Yeah, so that is, so ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is um, basically a a, it's a condition, and we sort of refer to it as um, a condition of neurodiversity. So we don't think of it as an illness per se. Um, it's almost because people are born with ADHD. It's sort of how it describes kind of how a brain is wired. But that wiring of the brain can lend itself to attention dysregulation, to impulsivity, uh, to executive functioning issues. And all of those things can show themselves in different areas. We often think of ADHD in relation to school, um, but there are lots of people with ADHD that do well in school if they have the proper support, accountability, structure, um, stimulation, which is huge. And I come from this, not only from a professional level, but as uh, from a personal level, I have ADHD and can relate, you know, very much to these. And I am impulsive by nature. And, um, and there are lots of parts of it that make life fun and <laughs> I had a very, I was very mischievous as a, as a child and could also get me into trouble pretty quickly. And with food, one of the things that I've, you know, noticed in, in understanding how ADHD works, there is a very high comorbidity of ADHD in individuals with bulimia and binge eating disorder. In fact, for any clinician, I always urge them, if you're treating a man or a woman, because the other myth is that you know, just like there's the myth that eating disorders don't affect men, there's the myth that ADHD doesn't affect women, and that's not true at all, that it's actually equal. Um, it's that girls are under-identified when it comes to the ADHD diagnosis, um, because maybe they don't present as, as hyperactive, but that doesn't mean in their heads that there isn't a lot of those racing thoughts, anxiety, and they might be more people pleasers and more perfectionistic. Um, but one way, if you think about, you know, executive functions, which are all the things we need to do to get things done, that eating is something that requires a tremendous amount of exec healthy eating, I should say, requires an, a lot of executive functions. We have to plan our meals. We have to think. We have to be mindful. Even a, um, attuning to cues, what we call our interoceptive awareness. Am I hungry? Am I satisfied? Am I you know, all of those things, those are things that are tough for people with eating disorders, and they're very tough for people with ADHD. I, I think about, um, from my, my own experience, I remember when I was 10 years old, when Chuck E. Cheese was a cool place to have birthday parties, <laughs> and my friend had um, a birthday party there, and I, 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 I mean, I love food in general. Like, I, I, I celebrate food. I grew up in a family that's very cultural, and the aroma of food, the taste of it, everything. So I love pizza and 
you know, after eating pizza and cake and playing arcade games, my friend's mom said, oh, guys, you know, eat up this pizza because I don't want to waste it. And there was like almost two, two whole pizzas left. And I had eaten, I don't even know, I couldn't even count how many slices. And, and I thought, oh, okay. And I remember there were a couple kids who were like, oh, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm full. And I went, oh, you didn't like the pizza? And they're like, no, I like the pizza. I'm just not hungry anymore. I'm like, oh, but you didn't like this pizza. And they're like, no, I like this pizza. I'm just, I'm not hungry. And I was like, and I, I mean, I laugh at it now, but I did not understand the concept. Wait a minute, you like this thing that's in front of you. It's an, it's available to you. What what do you mean you can't, like, of course I'm going to eat it. And that's an that's how an ADHD person thinks. It's like, it's it's the idea that I would tune in to myself internally and think, oh, wait a minute, I've actually had enough. I could eat more, but just because I could eat more doesn't mean I have to be eating more. And you know, those kinds of things are very common for people with ADHD. Now it could, so even in terms of healthy regulated eating, and then it could easily spill into something like binge eating disorder. It's not an accident or coincidence that the FDA approved medication for binge eating disorder is Vyvanse, which is an ADHD medication. It's a stimulant medication. Um, and so for my ADHD folks, even those who do not have eating disorders, their eating is often impacted by their ADHD. Um, a lot of them will strive to eat healthy and they might be hyper-focused on a project that they've been procrastinating on. They don't eat for eight hours and then they're done with the project and they're like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I have no bandwidth to executively plan a meal. They you know, end up binging because they're so hungry or getting fast food and, and whatnot. And, um, and studies have shown this, that in as young as you know, children, um, people with ADHD have a much higher risk for obesity, much higher risk for impulsive eating, um, eating disorders, um, even when it comes to healthy weight loss and um, studies looking at gastric bypass patients find that those with ADHD are less likely to lose weight, they're less likely to stick with the, the regimen and that you have to do. So that's um, a diagnosis and, and I, you know, what I love about doing the work that we do is just connecting dots in, in different communities. And I love specializing in different things and trying to bridge these worlds. So in the ADHD community, I'm educating people about eating and eating disorders. And in the eating disorders community, I wanna educate people about ADHD to understand that that's something that we would see. I, it's, I have worked with people with ADHD and anorexia. It's much less common than what we would see with bulimia and binge eating disorder. It really is fascinating. I do think one of the things that's so fabulous about our field is just like you said, connecting the dots, like listening to the whole story and, and thinking at it from so many different perspectives. And that's, I, I just, I've always loved that about our field. I just, I just wanted to sort of comment and I can't get Chuck E. Cheese out of my head because <laughs> again, this is like a walk down memory lane with you right now, because I'm, I'm just thinking of my childhood right now. So it's powerful and ADHD in and of itself is a really, can be a really uncomfortable diagnosis to carry. Meaning it's it just like you said, with the executive functioning, with the inability to stay on one task or or get off of a task and then put an eating disorder into it where you're ruminating about food and weight and calories. It is very, very overwhelming. Absolutely. And, and ADHD, it's interesting. It's effects or its impacts are either grossly underestimated or overestimated. And what I mean by that is that either people see it as like a nothing diagnosis, like, oh, we're all ADD, you know? And it's, it's like when people say, oh, I have a little OCD. And, and it's like, no, there's OCD, which is a very severe tormenting disorder. And then there's, you know, all of us have our little obsessions about things, very different. With ADHD, you know, I, I, you know, have a PhD, but if you look behind the scenes, I mean, high school was, really difficult for me to get through. I mean, it was, I, it's interesting because getting a PhD was easier for me than high school because I love what I do. And with ADHD, you know, it's it, as opposed to like a dimmer switch, like light switch for most people, if they're, you're more interested in something or something is more stimulating, you're more interested, you can pay attention better. Absolutely. But with ADHD, it's like a regular light switch. Like I'm either all in or all off. So the, the upside to that is 
I'm in a, I, I don't even call it a job because I don't feel this is a job. It's like what I do. Um, I have to be passionate about it. I have to, otherwise I'd be dysfunctional at it. And so I was completely freaked out as an adolescent thinking, oh my gosh, I don't, what am I, I can't do that, 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 that. Like, and so it was like, you know, going into music because I'm a I'm big music lover. I'm like, but I know, you know, with the, the other goals of family goals and things like that, that's probably wasn't going to be sustainable. Um, and so, you know, ADHD is one of those things that it can be really, really tough if people don't know how to manage it. And at the same time, sometimes you read things that says everyone with ADHD is in prison, is addicted to drugs, is high school dropouts. Those absolutely can be consequences of untreated, unmanaged ADHD. And if you treat it and manage it, people with ADHD can be incredibly successful. Many of our greatest entrepreneurs are people with ADHD or, and or dyslexia, because half of people with ADHD also have a learning disability. And so it's that's why we don't refer to it as an illness. It's more, if you don't manage it, it can, it can absolutely wreck and ruin your life. If you manage it, it can be responsible for the successes in your life. And that's what can make it confusing. And I get that from a popular culture perspective for people to understand, like, wait a minute, like, what, what do we know about, you know, this thing? Well, what's interesting is when you said with ADHD, you're either all in or you're all out. Now, apply that with eating disorder recovery. That, first of all, sometimes labels, and I'm going to use the word, a client is being resistant because there's times when they're all in and they're doing the work and then they're all out. So you say, what's wrong with your motivation? Why are you being resistant? Or you're thinking that. And that in and of itself can discourage people from the recovery process, from reaching out, from explaining to what they're really experiencing. I don't know if you've noticed that with some of the males that you work with, this all in on recovery, then all out that bouncing back and forth. Absolutely. And in, this is something, you know, that is so important, you know, and, and, you know, when I give talks to clinicians and I'll say, you know, how many of you have treated and worked with people with ADHD, you know, some people might raise their hands depending. And then after I give the talk about ADHD, I say, how many of you have treated people with ADHD and everybody raises their hand because they might not be, there are lots of people, you know, contrary to popular belief, it's not overdiagnosed. It's actually underdiagnosed. Yes, there are some people that are diagnosed with ADHD but don't have it. But most people, especially if you're over the age of 30, 35, like when we were kids, like I wasn't diagnosed as a kid. Like if you did decently enough in school, if you didn't have a conduct disorder, you wouldn't have been diagnosed with ADHD. And meanwhile, those were my friends. And those were the, you know, I was a very mischievous kid, but I had good social skills and I knew how to get around you know, and compensate. And I had a lot of strategies, you know, in place. Reading did not come easy to me and I kind of figured out a way. And so, you know, now we're better at diagnosing that. Um, but you're absolutely right that to understand, you know, these are patients that are not going to fill out their food log. They're going to forget the piece of paper. They're going to come late. I remember working with a, a man, he had a bulimia and he, you know, was really was committed to recovery. And he said, you know, he first started out by telling me he had been fired by three therapists. And anytime a patient says that, you're like, hmm, okay, what, why, why did they fire you? And he said, they, they told me that I wasn't you know, motivated enough. I must not really want it. Um, I was too stuck in wanting to be in the illness. And he goes, and I, I don't think that's the case. So met meeting with him, it was pretty evident. Um, you know, we, we, have this sort of ADHD, people with ADHD have like ADHD radar, but I did a full clinical evaluation and it confirmed, and he had a significant family history of ADHD. And so when we understood that, now this was a man who he would, for 50 minute sessions that we would have, he would sometimes be 40 minutes late for a 50 minute session. And every time, and I knew he wanted to be on time. I knew he would come, he'd be sweating, he'd be, oh my gosh, like I, I totally lost track of time or I didn't realize my car was on E and I had to get gas and this, and he would say these things. And I wasn't like, oh my gosh, excuses, excuses. I totally got it. Been there, done that. Like, I think that once we understood and I said, okay, how do we use these 10 minutes, you know, as, as maximally as possible? And what can we do to help you the next time? 
and we started developing strategies, executive functioning strategies, because if you don't manage the ADHD, the eating disorder is not going to be treated. I mean, nothing, it, 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 having ADHD can undermine the treatment of anything if you don't work on the ADHD component. And it turns out this was a man that absolutely wanted recovery, painfully wanted recovery, but was never sort of understood to the point where he thought, maybe I'm not motivated. He, and he started internalizing, not just from these previous therapists, but from teachers and people in his life that said he was lazy, that maybe he didn't want that. And he just, he just had a lot of executive dysfunction that we had to work through in order to work with the eating disorder. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of a few clients of mine right now. And, you know, I, I also, I treat every client as a unique individual and not everybody. I don't know why I'm going to use, uh, I don't even know what word I'm going to use, but I, I have one client who, especially during COVID when we're, when we're doing everything through telehealth, I let her walk around her apartment while we're doing session. She's multitasking. And I know, and, and by the way, I don't let this for everyone. It's because I know the client. And I actually understand that I'll lose her if I say sit, focus on me. And I actually have her, and I'm sorry, that was a terrible way of explaining it, but I have the connection with her when I let her be who she is and our sessions are so productive and she's really spot on. She never misses anything that we're talking about. She, I just, I have, and by the way, I also want to say Roberto, it took me a while to understand this with this client. I used to get aggravated. I used to say, put the phone down. I want you to focus. And all of a sudden it started dawning on me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What if I actually sort of lean into this? Let me see what happens. I actually, and and who knows, Roberto, you may be saying right now that is not the way to handle somebody who's struggling with ADHD. For some reason with this one client, it just works beautifully. Oh, I think that's, you're absolutely doing the right thing. I mean, in my, I mean, I'm doing telehealth now too, um, but when, when I have seen and see people in my office, I, I mean, my office is filled with fidget toys with, and it's not just for the, ki the kids, the young kids I work with. It could be the adults. Sometimes we're sitting on the floor because that's just more stimulating for them. Um, and similarly with telehealth, um, if they're walking around, they could be more in tune. And what we know about ADHD is, you know, as a kid, like you'll see kids with ADHD that fidget, you know, a lot. I was definitely one of those kids. It was very difficult for me to sit still. And um, I liked the drums and playing the drums. And so when I was, you know, younger, sometimes to get through certain boring classes, I'd be kind of drumming on my lap with my hands. And I remember a ninth grade uh, long government teacher, it would drive her, she'd be like, would you stop doing that? Like you're not paying attention. And I, and I didn't have the language then as I do now, but I knew enough that I said, Actually, it's when I'm not doing it that I'm totally spaced out. Because people with ADHD, I have a very, very vivid imagination. I have a very cool little world inside, inside my head because you have to when you have ADHD because the, you know, if you're in a boring situation, you have to kind of create your own sort of excitement, which you know, I think in some ways, again, is almost like one of these upsides because I do attribute a lot of my creativity and things like that to that kind of neurology. Um, but what we know now is that fidgeting actually stimulates the frontal lobe, which is where all of our executive functions are housed. And so for a lot of people with ADHD is they don't learn best sitting still, sitting at a desk. They may learn best moving around and hands-on. And if we think about school, the traditional school setting does not um, cater to that neurodiversity whatsoever. Um, and again, it was all about the class. If it was, you know, I remember my seventh grade, um, seventh grade, my parents coming home from a PTA meeting, and they said, we're really confused because this teacher says you're the star student. This teacher says you're falling asleep. This teacher says you're the class clown, and you're constantly interrupting with like one-liners and jokes that you know, now at the time, they didn't tell me that the teacher also found them funny, but didn't want to tell me. <laughs> Years later, they said, yes, yeah, she found you funny, but she didn't want to encourage you. I'm like, I know it because I saw it on her face. Um, 
they were like, what is going, and I said, I can tell you why, because this class is so engaging and the teacher puts the desks in a circle. And so we're all engaging and there's eye contact and debate and love that class. History class, I said, the teacher's so nice, but he sits at his desk and talks and teaches from a desk. He doesn't even move around in the classroom. There's no AV, there's no audio visual material. There's like, and the subject wasn't, it's actually stimulating to me now, history, but at the time was like, oh my gosh. And I would just within almost, it's almost like a, a form of narcolepsy, um, sort of a called a primary disorder of vigilance with ADHD that unless I'm getting up and being the class clown, I can easily fall asleep, like within minutes if I'm bored. Um, and that can, I mean, it's less so now, but it can still happen now is evidence what happened in January when I was meeting with my accountant and she's going through this Excel spreadsheet and my wife and I are sitting there and she's going through and I'm, it was like me being in third grade all over again, squirming in my seat, my eyes are hit and my wife's like, oh my gosh. And so I just had to put it out and I told her, I said, look, I just have to tell you I'm ADD and I don't, I'm really ADHD. Like, it's not like I'm just saying, oh, I have I'm ADD. So this is really hard for me to process this. And I just, this is not for me. I thank God that there are people who do this kind of work because that's certainly not something that I could do. And I made it funny and that stimulated me. That got me connected, you know, in there. Um, but it's, it can be pretty difficult. I also want to point out when you're talking about this internal world that you have and it's really creative and, you know, all this stuff. Imagine somebody with ADHD that can't focus on what's happening in front of them, say in a classroom or in a meeting. And so they go into this internal eating disorder world or they start scrolling through calories and fad diets and they get, when we were talking earlier, you're either on or you're off. Unfortunately, you can be really on in scrolling through social media and how do you lose X amount of weight in 10 days and all this stuff. And so that's a really, really, that's one of the complexities of ADHD. And, and, and eating disorders amongst many other complexities with eating disorders, but you can tune one thing out and completely focus on something else. And that's, that's tough, right? That's absolutely true. And that is one of the factors that can lend, you know, to eating disorders is that you become very hyper-focused. And that's what, you know, ADHD is not that people lack attention. It's that it's, again, this dysregulated attention. So when we focus, we are hyper-focused on it. And so that's why, like, if, if you are someone that loves reading classic novels, you could be, that's what you could be doing. And no one would suspect, oh, he has ADHD. He's reading Moby Dick and War and Peace. Well, if that's the thing that's stimulating then, but if food and calories and weight and absolutely, people with ADHD are impulsive by nature. We can be impatient. We want instant gratification. So the idea of, like, for people who are interested in healthy weight loss, you know, where it could be a pound a week, you know, or, or less, the, that in, inherently is really discomforting for someone with ADHD, because I've had patients that go, that do those 20 pounds in two weeks, um, you know, quote unquote diets. And, and then of course they gain the weight back and it becomes this vicious cycle. And part of the work is on how to set realistic expectations and, and be more attuned. I mean, and studies show that even people with ADHD tend to eat faster. Um, they don't taste their food as much. So they're not as connected to it. I'm also wondering, and this could be a really far stretch, so please tell me if, if I'm going too far with this concept, but how does that play in with athletes and eating disorders and ADHD? Meaning there are some sports where, whether it's wrestling or rowing, or I don't know if there's a weight requirement in gymnastics, where they restrict, 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 they restrict their fluids, they restrict their food, they go into saunas, they do all this stuff for weigh-in, and then swing and have incredible binges or binging and purging episodes. And, and again, I could be making way too far of a connection, but that's what I'm thinking of when you're saying that. I don't, I don't know if that's correct with ADHD and athletes and eating. No, you're, you're right on that. So I've treat is I've treated many ma male athletes and, you know, there are some 
uh, men that I've treated who had an eating disorder before the sport and sometimes gravitate to that sport because it places such an emphasis on body and weight management and things like that. And other times the other way around, they don't have any issues with um, food or body image. And then the sport itself kind of produces this demand. Now, AD sports can be really good for people with ADHD. I mean, you're moving your body. I mean, that's why during this COVID time, a lot of these young, the, the youth, you know, who haven't been able to play sports and get outside as much, it's been really, really difficult for everybody, but particularly for um, my ADHD clients who, you know, don't have that outlet. It's very, very ungrounding. So sports can be a very useful uh, zone for people with ADHD to be in. And it's no, you know, it's not a coincidence that we see a high incidence of ADHD in a lot of athletes. Even then, there are many professional athletes that have been very open about having ADHD. But you're absolutely right that then if you have somebody who now has, you know, is predisposed to eating issues, eating disorders, and though that relationship altogether um, can be really, really tough because people with ADHD can be perfectionistic. You know, we don't think of ADD as being perfectionist, but again, it's all about if this is what I care about and what's stimulating to me, I, you know, you can see a drive and an ambition that can take people in really good ways and take people in really bad ways and really dark places. And I totally understand that mentality. I mean, I have, I, I, I've lived that mentality in the sense that I, I can get sucked into something and it's sort of disconnecting me and losing me, you know, from like, wait a minute, what's the bigger picture here, you know, that I'm trying to, to do. And with something like food, absolutely. And, and you mentioned social media, which that's something that, you know, when we wrote Adonis Complex 2000, there wasn't the social media that, you know, we have now. And that's a whole other um, absolutely, you know, media impact, but information and, you know, there's no, as we know now, I mean, there's so much misinformation out there, not only politically and things like that, but oh my gosh, around like body and weight. And, and so some of my younger clients come in and male clients will say, oh, you know, I, I'm taking this supplement, this supplement, this supplement, and I'm doing this and this YouTuber you know, is he said it really was great. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this guy, you know, he, he's, he's not a medical doctor. He's not a professional. And let me tell you what this could do to your body and like what this is. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just, I also wanted to highlight that before. And oh gosh, I feel terrible. We're coming to an end soon. Breaks my heart. I, that I don't know if people understand that men are just as high risk for medical complications as women with eating disorders. And I don't know if that's a, a myth that I've made up in my head, but bone density lost, heart failure, liver function. I mean, can you speak a little bit to that about men have, again, I keep asking you to speak to these things where I'm like, let me just say it all. And then Roberto, just say one word about it. No, like, about the whole, the medical complications for men and eating disorders. Yes, no, I appreciate actually you, you bringing up these points and these avenues because it is so important. And I would say, in fact, I mean, I've come across a lot of medical complications that in some ways are, um, I mean, the, the, the symptoms of self are, are not severe, but I mean, what I are rather, they're severe in the sense that they go unnoticed. So for example, I remember working with a 22-year-old college student who had a heart attack. He had cardiac arrest and, um, and it turned out, I mean, he was you know, binging and purging and all, and it was definitely related to his athletics. And, and, um, and he said, I didn't, he goes, I, I didn't think that it was really that problematic and his coach knew that he was doing it. And so I've definitely come across again, this sort of distinction of with men, I don't think we're quite there to see like, oh no, this is just as dangerous as with female athletes or, or you know, women um, with these issues, but bone density, you know, when you're a teenager and for boys who are anorexic, they, their testosterone levels drop. That's not, that's not um, healthy for them. Um, you know, cognitive issues, um, heart issues, um, all of those kind of complications that, you know, we would see, you know, with girls, um, we see with boys, 
and, and men. And if we have men that are untreated longer, I've definitely come across that. You know, I've worked with men in their 50s who are coming to treatment for the first time, but who have unfortunately been struggling with for 40 years, who have irreversible damage on their bone density or other parts of their body. It's so, it's, it's underdiagnosed from people presenting with symptoms and it's underdiagnosed because doctors and therapists don't know what to ask or just make assumptions. There's one other thing I also want to talk about with the medical, and then we are going to have to wrap this up. The, the other thing is just the difference in men and women with regards to the BMI, which by the way, we know the BMI is not the, at all a good indicator of an eating disorder, yet there are still many, many doctors and therapists and dietitians who use it, but bone structure is different for men. Every, so many things are different for men, and we don't even have a different system, do we, for men and women with BMIs? Not really. I mean, in the sense that, you know, with, with men, you know, they might, the, the ranges might, you know, look differently, but to that point, I have seen many times actually men who get denied treatment for residential or inpatient because their BMI is not low enough. And meanwhile, all their medical labs and everything are saying this person is just as, as, as high risk of dying as, you know, picturing like an 80 pound, you know, young woman, but because for them and what their body should be it is a huge disparity and it's really straining on their heart. And I'm thinking of this one particular patient that we had a fight with the insurance company and, and the parents had to threaten a lawsuit basically to get him you know, into treatment because they're saying, well, wait a minute, we're not covering this. His BMI is in an average range, but it was supposed to be, it's supposed to be so much higher given what his body type was, you know, in terms of bone structure, in terms of um, his build and things like that. So that's, you're right in that it starts from, you know, less than 1% of eating disorder research is devoted to boys and men. So we're not researching enough. Um, you know, there, there are programs that unfortunately don't even take boys. Um, so there, you know, parents have to be educated more around the body image language they're talking around their sons, whether you're a male or whether you're the dad, the mom, or anyone, you know, that we, we know that moms have to be careful about how they talk about in front of their daughters as well as their sons, as I want to say, dads, how do you talk about your body and your body? Do you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to cheat today and eat, you know, something. It's like, well, why are you cheating? Why not just say, I'm going to enjoy this cupcake because it's a yummy cupcake. Um, and so boys are internalizing that language as much. So on all these different levels, there are these obstacles that make this problem still a, a, a un, real under-identified problem and underdiagnosed problem. And there is there are a couple studies too that have shown that there's bias even in the medical profession when physicians are given a case vignette of a male with all these symptoms and a female with all of these symptoms, they're more likely to diagnose eating disorder with the female and more likely to diagnose like a GI issue or some, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or, or a parasite or, you know, these other issues with men. And I've seen that with patients, you know, in the very, that first study I did at this, my senior honors thesis, I had a man in that study, I'll never forget him. He was six feet. He was barely a hundred pounds and he was very, very sickly. And he went to a local college and I said, how are you even cognitively like function? He says, I have to, I'm doing it takes me five hours to do something that it would take someone an hour to do because my brain just isn't working. And I said, you know, when did you go to your physician? And he said, yeah, he goes, you know, they went through, he went through this checklist asking me about, you know, my bowel movements and things like that. And he never once asked me, are you restricting purposely? Like, are you, is this anorexia? Not once. And he's not, he said, I was almost hoping someone would ask me, he goes, because I just didn't have, he says, I didn't have the courage to say, I have anorexia. But he says, I, when he saw the ad in, that I put out, he thought, oh my gosh, like, I guess I'm not the only person. And I remember his voicemail message in particular, because he was crying, which, I mean, I can get emotional now thinking about it. Um, you know, just saying, oh my gosh, like I thought I was in this whole world by myself and carrying this around and nobody 
nobody. People might see me and think I, they know I look sickly, but no one has once asked me, is, is there a problem here in terms of like with an eating disorder? And that, and after the study, I, I you know, work with, um, you know, some professionals in the area and we got him treatment. Um, so I, it's, it is on so many different levels, we need better identification, which is why I'm glad that we're talking right now, because anyone who listens to this, this is how we just continue to get the word out. And I am so glad you do the work you do, Roberto. You, you have no idea. I, like I said, at the, when you first got on, you make me smile. The work you do is amazing. Your passion, it is so necessary. I, I, I just want to end on this final note that I, I don't know why I'm just remembering this. I was at a conference probably about 15 or 16 years ago. And I don't know if you ever read the book, Bitter Ice. I have read that book, yes. And that was a, a, a woman's story, a narrative about her husband having an eating disorder. And I believe, Roberto, she was like one of the keynote speakers because it was so unusual to have a male and and memoirs written about a male and all this stuff. And and I was a I was amazed. I was like, oh my God. And a keynote. And I just, it, when we look at where we're at now, I, I'm, this is why I'm like so grateful that we have people like you in the field. And, you know, whenever I hear you speak, I just, I get very excited. Oh, thank you. I, I, I have a passion. I really do of just getting the message out there and, and connecting, you know, with people. I mean, it's been great that I've been able, you know, I was supposed to do a number of talks in 2020, but we have webinars, which is even a, better way to sort of you can reach out to people all, all around the world um, in that way but I really do like getting that information out there about uh, you know regardless of whatever it is you know I'm talking about but yeah I remember that book and I met the author and her and I have had a lot of correspondence in the past and it was it was I mean to have a book written especially from a spouse's perspective was so unique and and so necessary just for representation of just understanding you know that yeah. Roberto, we are going to have to end. And as you know, I have one final question for you that has nothing to do with eating disorders. If you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? <laughs> That's a good one. I, um, I would definitely, um, I would say a sitcom. Um, and I say that because I kind of, I kind of sort of look at life that way. I mean, even before reality shows were a thing, um, and again, this could be sort of ADHD coming up. I, you know, I get myself in, I call them shenanigans when I was younger. <laughs> I tell my parents, shenanigans, shenanigans. And I said, one day we're going to look at this and we'll laugh. And I would actually often make this comment to say, if somebody were looking at this from the outside, it could be a little funny. I mean, and I love, um, I really appreciate the art of stand-up comedy and I love stand-up comedians that can talk about really tough things or dark things, but in really funny ways. Um, and those are kind of often been my favorite kind of, I mean, I like the sort of slapstick silly sitcoms, but I like the sitcoms that can have that sort of blend in there. Um, but that's sort of how I look at it. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm very serious about the things I'm serious about. And I'm also really silly and I can laugh at myself very easily. Um, and so without a doubt, I would say, I would say a sitcom. I would say a sitcom, but I can also see you in the movie Rock of Ages. 80s music, yeah. <laughs> musician, VH1, the whole thing, right? Absolutely. Well, that was my, I mean, that was my dream is like to be, when I was younger, to be a rock star. It's like, that was, I mean, music was, I mean, I used to say, and I, I would still stand by this. It was my, it, it is my religion, my drug, you know, my, I mean, that was my stimulation. And speaking of ADD, I mean, I've never written a paper without music playing in the background. I need that um, to sort of help. And whereas you know, some people would think, no, that's going to distract you. And luckily, third grade, you know, my dad saying, you can't have music. Well, writing, you know, I was writing a thing about Athena, the goddess of wisdom. 
And I said, I, all I know is that it helps me. And he allowed me to do it. And from that day on, you know, so my dissertation, I wrote to Green Day and the Go-Go's and Joan Jett and Nirvana. <laughs> and I thank, and I thanked them in the acknowledgements. Page. I love it. That's the best part. I'd like to thank Nirvana, the Go-Go's, Joan Jett. That's fantastic. Yeah. My committee said, I don't know if anyone's ever thanked Hole, because I was a big fan of Hole, uh, Courtney Loves Band, and and they were like, okay, and I was like, yep, that's punk rock, man, you know. <laughs> you be you, right? Yes. There it is. Roberto, thank you so, so much. It has absolutely been a pleasure having you on the show this week. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure as well. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk, with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. <laughs>